across the whole ancient world. divine signs in the movements, color, size, shape, and texture of the internal organs of the animals they sacrifice to the gods. Divination from entrails is not disconnected from divination from birds. That birds of prey are favored as sign givers already highlights the connection with animal meat, and Greek tragedians make the link with ecstasy. When in Sophocles Antigone Tiresias gets a negative signal from both his sacrifices and strange bird behaviors, he explains that the whole food chain has been polluted by the birds feasting on tainted carrion introduced into the food chain from the unburied corpse of Polynices. Methius's punishment stands as an iconic connection between the two practices. For refusing to give Zeus information, he is punished by having the archetypal bird of divination, Zeus's eagle, repeatedly eat out his own liver the central organ in ecstasy, the entrails as a whole were also a part of human physiology is presumably not far from the surface of the consistent fascination with these organs. It may also help to explain the greater salience of divination from entrails in military contexts, where the human version of such organs would have been easily observable. Examples of the so-called humbarba face make the point graphically. These representations of human-looking faces fashioned out of animal intestines are found in multiple places in Mesopotamia, and in a temple on the Acropolis at Gortin on Crete, probably dating from the Archaic period. Liver receives the most attention of the organs. Talf is taken as a sign that the god was present in it. Anatomically, it was commonly thought to be the source of blood for the body, and so had a fundamental role in determining the vitality of the organism. Liver sits as a locus of the emotions, analogous to the position the heart takes in later European traditions. In the case of the liver, there is a particular prominence of the emotions of anger, grief, fear, and anxiety. In the magical tradition, a target's liver is subject to attack in the case of erotic spells. The organs of interest are the heart and lungs. The Greeks borrowed the idea of the significance of entrails from the cultures of the ancient Near East, where it is in evidence in among the Assyrians, Hittites, and Mesopotamians. The practice is very old. Clay representation of a divinatory liver that survives from Mesopotamia dates from the 18th century BC, and reveals a discipline already developed enough by then to produce a relatively elaborate and inscribed practical model. Comparable model livers show up around the Near East and also in the classical period near Rome. The bronze liver of Piacenza dates from the late 2nd century BC. About the size of a fist and elaborately inscribed, its affinities with the Mesopotamian models that predate it by a millennium indicate a clear line of influence. The Near Eastern to the Italian practices. The ways in which the Piacenza liver is stylized depart from actual anatomy in ways that parallel the Mesopotamian versions. Homer speaks of divination from animal parts, but only in a circumscribed way. He refers to a certain kind of sacrificing priest, Thuascus, who is apparently interested in gauging whether the burned sacrifices have been accepted by the gods or not. The distinction between this practice and the more elaborate examination of aspects of the entrails themselves is preserved in the Prometheus text with which we began, where divination from the thigh bones wrapped in fat is treated as a separate category from divination from the smoothness, color, or symmetry of the organs. We have evidence of both kinds in the classical period. The testimony of Sophocles' Antigone mentioned above shows the main question to be whether the sacrifice is accepted by the divinity, indicating divine favor or disfavor. 
On the other hand, Plato assumes a rich set of hermeneutical possibilities built into the liver in his discussion of the organ in the timius. Section in Euripides Electra also indicates the fuller range. Aegis thus disembowels a calf, takes the entrails in his hands, and on inspection sees that the liver is lacking a lobe, portending trouble, and the portal vein and gallbladder reveal oncoming threats. There are some 20 representations of liver inspection on Attic vases from 530 to 490 BC, indicating a well-developed interest, which probably accrued some complexity and detail. In historical accounts, we find mainly simpler descriptions, without the anatomical specifics, of an omen from sacrifice being favorable or unfavorable. Technical vocabulary that Greeks and Romans use for labeling the significant portions of the liver is shared with the ancient Near East. In each tradition observers could see a gate, path, river, and a head or lobe. Even some of the particular interpretive moves show a measure of overlap that cannot be coincidental. A missing lobe or head is taken to mean disaster for the king, and multiple such lobes mean a rivalry for power. For all the language points to increments along a binary logic of auspicious and inauspicious. A normal, healthy-looking liver was a good sign. Bad signs are seen in plugged-up pathways, non-standard color, and especially deformities, the more dramatic the more significant. Beyond this basic architecture, the Romans leave behind more evidence of a system than the Greeks. Both Cicero and Livy speak of a pars hostilis and a pars familiaris. This adds a further layer of interpretive possibilities, with the pars hostilis being a negative twin of the other, and allowing for another doubling of significant criteria. The Piacenza liver confirms this and gives fascinating further information. It is an Etruscan product, inscribed elaborately with Etruscan names of gods. In its shape, it has a clear left-right split indicated by a cleft, and exaggerated protuberances standing for the gallbladder, portal vein, and chordate lobe. The inscriptions are nearly all on the visceral side. A band of markings around the perimeter divides it into 16 sections, each inscribed with the name of a god, or sometimes two. Several sources indicate that the Etruscans divided the heavens into 16 regions, with each of them being the house of a different god, do not have evidence of such an understanding of the heavens outside the Etruscan world. This indicates that observers would correlate conditions in the microcosmic areas of the liver with macrocosmic regions of the skies and the gods that lived there. Divination by entrails becomes intertwined with observation of the skies, whether lightning, or birds, or of the heavens more generally. The model, then, functioned as a portable instrument. Given the degree of stylization, it would be more likely to be the tool of an expert than a non-expert. Within the perimeter are 24 interior quadrants, with further names inscribed. The interpretive possibilities with 40 total regions overlaid by overall binary aspects are exponentially large. In this greater degree of elaboration, the Roman system is more like Near Eastern precedents than the Greek evidence shows. As was the case with divination from birds, the Romans regulated and maintained the reading of entrails within a social institution. Roman extispacy was overseen by Heruspex, and the augurs appeared to have had nothing to do with it. The institution of the Heruspices had a less strict and systematized character than that of the augurs. Not quite an office, and not formed into a college until the late Republic, the Heruspex was most often an independent expert drawn from the local Etruscan population. According to legend the technique was handed down from one tags, an Etruscan dwarf who emerged from a farmer's furrow in Roman mythic times. 
Her auspices could render an official opinion on the meaning of entrails only upon being asked by a body of magistrates. They provided responses that were then accepted or not. Expertise also covered, covered prodigies and lightning. It is noteworthy that the Romans both abundantly consulted entrails and also consistently ascribed the practice to the Etruscans. In a cultural trope that is historically common, reminiscent of the stylized views of Native Americans among culturally dominant groups in North America, the Romans saw in a conquered local people a distinctive and exotic religious expertise. In a telling hyperbole, Livy tells us that the Etruscans were the nation more than any other devoted to religious rites. This social position of exoticism simultaneously provides a distinctive power and raises a potential hostility among interested clients. The rage that Gracchus expresses upon receiving an unwelcome judgment, insulting the Herospices as foreigners, cannot have been idiosyncratic to him. While governmental mechanisms existed to consult the Herospices, they maintained a certain distance from the state apparatus. Private Herospices were under the employ of generals and magistrates, is the Herospex Burina who, upon observing a sacrificial beast missing a heart, and then on the next day seeing a liver missing its head, warns Julius Caesar to beware the Ides of March. Two ideas competed to explain the emergence of divine signs in the entrails. Some thought the god intervenes at the moment of the sacrifice and places a stamp on the innards. Others found this idea unappealing since it made the divine out to be a kind of busybody, with time enough to do menial work. The second idea suggests that the divine is involved by guiding the selection of which animal is sacrificed. We also have testimony that divination from entrails was connected with an additional important method. It formed a preliminary ritual before the delivery or oracles at Delphi. Divine insight and animal ways of knowing. Knowing. Just as animals are a prominent theme in the study of divinatory practice, so too in ancient divinatory theory. There are three main currents of philosophical thought on divination, and, counterintuitively, when thinkers draw the connecting line of communication between the gods and us, they consistently construct the path via the realm of animals. The first two schools of thought, coming from Plato and Aristotle, understand divinatory insights to be tied with animal instinct, and to belong to a fringe form of cognition that is specifically connected with humans' animal natures. The Stoics, by contrast, embrace divination as an important piece of their understanding of the cosmos as a whole, and of humans as part of it. To explain divine signs they centrally appeal to the principle that the cosmos is itself a living animal, Zon. The idea pre-exists in Plato's Timaeus, but they develop it much further, proposing that because the cosmos is a single creature, it must course through and through with interconnections by which otherwise hidden conditions can be observed. The theories vary from thinker to thinker, but in each case they have to do not with abstractions or the disembodied realms philosophers customarily linked with the divine. Rather they are anchored in the creaturely side of the human and the corporeal dimensions of the world. According to Plato, there is a portion of the human soul that is identical with the soul of animals, and it is specifically to this part that divinatory insight belongs. While he regularly references divination as a literary motif, making it an emblem of non-discursive knowledge and referencing it in a variety of tones, sometimes mocking, sometimes neutral, sometimes with a rather profound sincerity, divination as a topic in its own right interests him in the Timaeus. This dialogue is distinctive in the corpus for being anchored on the concept of the animal, Zon. To a unique degree here, he understands the anthropos as an animal, a creature, among the others. Others. He entertains broad discussions of such matters as anatomy, reproduction, digestion, and metabolism, 
and treats our corporeal, creaturely natures as a consequential piece of what it is to be human. Plato speaks of the creation of the universe itself as a cosmic living animal, narrates that a race of human animals was fabricated in its image. Further, he claims that non-human animals are then directly derived from humans. The original race of men was given a three-part soul, with the highest divine part, reason, housed in the head. It rules over the lower parts, including the lowest one, which is placed below the midriff in the lower trunk. It has a sinister, animalistic cast, the creators had to bind this one down there like a wild beast, where it is constantly grazing at its manager. In addition to these pungent metaphors, he explicitly equates this part of the human soul with the souls of animals. Humans are the original race of creatures. Through reincarnation, the first race of men bequeathed their souls to following generations. Those among them who did not keep the highest parts of their souls robust, were reborn as creatures equipped only with the lower orders of soul and these became the non-human animals. So Agony puts a finer point on the animalistic side of the human soul, more than just being animal-like, it is actually not distinguishable from the soul of an animal. Now, all three parts of the soul, even the lowest, engage in distinctive cognitive activities. These are related to their internal movements. The rational intellect operates like our internal gyroscope, spinning in alignment with the motion of the fixed stars, and the soul's lowest, animal part mostly lurches about and produces only appetitive desires. But occasionally during sleep, when most of the soul is dormant, the animal part can become soothed and begin to spin in alignment. When it does it is able to achieve its own kind of insight, divination through dreams, which he calls a phantom image of daytime intellectual activity. Plato further deepens the animalistic and corporeal character of this cognition and, in a bold move, links it directly to divination by the liver. Tells us that the gods created the organ of the liver as a safeguard that soothes the lower soul when its animalistic desires get out of hand. The liver mirrors images from our upper soul that either calm or frighten the lower soul into submission. Plato elaborates that this is why this organ in recently slain animals contains the signs it does, though he plays down their usefulness. The gods granted this capacity to the very lowest part of our soul as a compensation to it, he says. They rectified the vile part in us by establishing divination there, so that it might in some degree lay hold of the truth. Aristotle thinks that people can achieve insights in their dreams that are unavailable to their higher intellects and, using his own distinctive intellectual resources, he also maps these cognitive capabilities onto the parts of our souls, those that we share with animals. The most important treatise on the topic, his on divination by dreams, claims that only people who have atrophied higher intellects are able to achieve such insights. He speaks of vibrations from faraway events that move through the air at night, when it tends to be still, and are then assembled into a prescient dream image by the soul. To account for that assembly, he rules out appeals to the highest, discursive, self-aware part of the soul, for that is precisely what is dormant during sleep. And it is especially dormant among those who have very little of it to begin with. Simpletons, the melancholic, the talkative, and those out of their wits are better able to see what comes next in their nocturnal visions because they are most easily pulled along the vector towards which the external vibrations are proceeding. In this way they get a vision that correlates to the way events in the outside world are tending. He connects this kind of cognition directly with animal instinct. It is counterintuitive for Aristotle that empty-headed people should have insights to which those with robust intellects are blind, and he tries to explain how lower-level cognitive operations achieve some intellectual gain. 
In the Eudemian ethics he links accurate dreamers with another strange group, which he also observes strictly among dim-witted people. Those with consistent good luck, these groups benefit from a rudimentary form of cognition that we share with animals, and in fact all things with souls. Consistently across his corpus, Aristotle divides the souls, functions into three main layers. All living things have the nutritive capacity, which regulates the powers to grow and reproduce. A smaller group, the subset of animals, are in addition capable of perception, and within this group a further subset, humans, have an even higher capacity on top of that and are capable of reason. Our reasoning is by far the most advantageous information processing center, but the lower orders produce incremental good outcomes as well. He links both the psychic assembling of prescient dreams and the spontaneous actions that result in good luck to the most rudimentary of the psychic functions. He claims they emerge from a class of psychic movements beneath our awareness that characterize the nutritive soul. They go under the technical term of hormai, or impulses. The hormai are unselfconscious inclinations to do things, below the level of thought and even of conscious desire. They are involuntary activities, such as those that result in digestion and gestation, which produce obviously good things. Happening for each creature, they manifest a core Aristotelian principle that nature always, or for the most part, reaches for the better, invokes the principle specifically in consideration of lowly creatures, but perhaps even in inferior creatures there is some natural good stronger than themselves which aims at their proper good. If the lucky and those who get warnings in their dreams are operating according to these impulses, and achieve their good outcomes via this lowly information processing center. Just as it steers even rudimentary forms of life towards what is good for them, so it is humming away inside humans as well. The empty-headed are especially attuned to it, because their internal dialogue, which in intellectually sound people is busy working towards more complex good things, is so faint. While they cannot achieve the magnificent insights of which fully realized humans are uniquely capable, they can achieve uncanny good results via their attunement to the incremental benefits achieved by the rudimentary systems. Aristotle thereby aligns divinatory insight with animal instinct. For both Plato and Aristotle, divination is a fringe phenomenon, and is explicable as an alternative form of cognition, which shows affiliations with how animals think. In the case of the Stoics, the basic premises are quite different. Divination is a core piece of their basic theological positions, is embedded in their principles of physics and cosmology, and is affiliated not with a lower form of cognition, but is an expression of what they understood to be the one, single form of it. Their distinctive views on theology, cosmology, and physics, and their monistic psychology, yield a cosmos with quite a different shape from that of either Plato or Aristotle. Given the degree of this difference, it is all the more noteworthy that the category of the animal again emerges as a central one. They straightforwardly claim that the signs percolating through the cosmos, including those that emerge in dreams or oracles, operate based on the physiological structures of a living organism, in their case the relevant animal is the cosmos itself. The platonic idea that the cosmos is a single creature takes on an entirely new pertinence for the Stoics. For them it is not a metaphor, but a statement of fact, and their larger philosophical system has unique resources for thinking it through. Stoic understanding, all things that exist in the universe are material. They are a composite of two kinds of matter, the inert kind, or hull, and an active divine vapor, evanescent but still material, called pneuma. This is the case for every discrete entity in the cosmos, from planets, to people, to grains of sand. 
The hull gives a thin bulk and the rarefied fiery internal pneuma provides it with its qualities, characteristics, and energy. Different degrees of pneuma result in different orders of these characteristics. Inanimate things are held together by a degree of pneuma called hexes, tension. Plants and non-mobile living things like a fetus are held together by physis. Animals are held together by soul, which they understand to be the particular form of pneuma that provides for perception and self-propulsion. And rational self-propelled living things, that is humans, have a logic PSYCH. Further, the pneuma that permeates each individual thing is entirely contiguous with the pneuma in each adjacent thing, including the pneuma that courses through the atmosphere around us and beyond into the fiery regions of the heavens. So, the pneuma as a whole is a synthesizing breath that suffuses every nook and cranny of the cosmos and links each part of it to every other part in a non-mysterious, entirely materialist mode. They claim the pneuma as a whole is coextensive with the divine, and finally that it is the soul of the cosmos, which they understand to be a single animal. The flow of energy that vivifies the cosmic creature, via the pneuma, they label with the technical name sympathia. Sympathy, literally co-feeling in Greek, is a centerpiece of their explanations for divinatory signs. It is anchored in a notion of the cosmos as an organism. The term pre-exists in the Hippocratic medical tradition and in physiology. It articulates the interconnection of body parts that, while distant from each other, may well be interconnected. A flush in the face might be linked with a fever produced by an infection in the toe. The concept sets the operation of divinatory signs within a powerfully physiological context. That unseen conditions in the cosmos will be made manifest by visible parts of it is for them as sure as the idea that organisms manifest signs of their conditions in visible symptoms. Such divine signs are an integral part of their physics and theology. The Stoics tie the very existence of the divine to the existence of divine signs, an argument all the more powerful since atheism is a near absurdity in antiquity. Significance of categories related to animals, even in this abstract arena, further underscores the broad relevance of such themes to divination in general. Each of these thinkers, in their different ways, configures the study of divination as an investigation into a more or less distinctive way of knowing. They attempt to discern how certain people are able to know things in ways that stretch our customary cognitive abilities. To do this they begin with an understanding of divination as an emergent insight, which bubbles up from knowledge directly embedded in organisms. The salience of animal themes suggests a larger habit of thought around animal nature, beyond merely the kinds of signs observers look to, whether birds, beasts, or entrails. More than placing humans in conversation with their gods, the practices of divination place humans in conversation, the creaturely dimensions of their experience. Within the classical context, human intellects and corporeal bodies, animals and humans alike, sit in sometimes strident opposition. Via divination they find a medium in which they can collaborate. The best source for ancient ideas and practices of divination is to be found in Cicero's De Divination, which passes on important stoic and peripatetic ideas, and aims to aggregate many earlier schools of thought. Animals figure commonly in his considerations. Multiple commentaries illuminate the text. In English, those of Arthur Stanley Peace, 1969, and David Wardle, 2006, are the best guides. Auguste Bouchleclerc's, 1879-82, for volume overview of the history de la divination dans l'antiquite has not been surpassed for its thorough documentary coverage of the time.